Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through chapter 4, verse 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Let's stop there. Let's back up this for some context. Let's go verse 8 of chapter 3 because that's the middle of a thought there from Paul. So to get all of this in, let's go Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to call an audible here. Let's go Philippians chapter 3 verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake... I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Grass withers, flower fades, Word of our God stands forever. This is uh, finishing up chapter 3 uh, this morning. And it's also kind of finishing up a thought from Paul. There's, there are so many wonderful things we could pick apart. We could take two, I can count probably three weeks we could take just uh, very easily on this idea of the resurrection body. These, uh, these brothers who have come in and all of the ways that they are, uh, their end is destruction. And, and Paul in the beginning section, we could split this up into lots of different um, sections. But this morning, like we're trying to just get through and take the big ideas. And so there'll be things this morning that you maybe will read. And boy, I wish we could dig into that a little more. I encourage you to do so. If you want to talk to me about it, I'd love to talk about them. But this morning, we're going to just try to get the main idea. And you can see it from the very end of the passage. Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, therefore, he's kind of a, a, a summation statement. Therefore, because of all of this, my brothers, my joy, and my crown stand firm thus in the Lord. 
Paul is calling all the readers of this epistle to therefore stand firm. This is where Paul is taking his readers. All of this that we've read this morning is to get them to a place where they can stand firm in the Lord. And so we should pay attention to how Paul gets us to the reality of being able to stand firm. How are we going to stand firm? He's calling us to do this. How are we going to get there? Standing firm... Let me state the obvious. is a very important part of reality. Be able to stand firm. And just the, just the imagery of being able to stand firm on something. There are too many ridiculous YouTube clips. America's Funniest Home Videos is what we used to call them when I was a kid. Of parents out walking around like on a slip and slide with their kids, you know. And they're walking them along. And all of a sudden, dad loses his footing. And the kid goes flying off. And, you know, that all kinds of ridiculous videos of people losing their footing. And that if your footing is the right kind of slippery, it doesn't take much at all, right, to, to blow you down. If a toddler pulling on a giant, a, a much larger father's arms on a slip and slide, if his footing is bad, down he goes. Uh, when I was, we were in high school, Darla and I were walking into a, a basketball game and she was in her cheerleading outfit, so she didn't, there was an icy patch coming up, but of course you don't want to fall in your cheerleading outfit because it'd be very cold, so I'm the big tough guy, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll walk you across the ice, and so she's got a hold of me, and you know, I'm not a huge, uh, high school student, but compared to Darla, I had, I, I was doing pretty good, and we're walking along, and she starts to slip, and I, you know, I got her, she pulls my arm, what happens? My feet go out from underneath me and I end up flat on my back right in front of the school and little Darla just finishes walking across the ice on the better footing. You know, and, and if, you, if you lose your footing, it doesn't take anything to blow you over. If your footing is not solid, it doesn't take much of anything to throw you off. However, if the footing is good... If the footing is solid, even the weakest of individuals can remain upright, can keep going. It's not a matter of their strength per se. It's a matter of the, sol- the, the solidness, the strength of the footing that they are standing on. And this is the heartbeat of the passage this morning. What is this footing that the Christian is to stand on? It brings our main idea to this morning is that the footing... That enables the Christian to stand firm is the truth that Christ has made them his own. The footing that enables the Christian to stand firm is the truth that Christ has made them his own. Paul, as you can see in, in verse in, in chapter three, verse seventeen, is calling for the readers of these passages. He says, "Brothers, join in imitating me, and also those who walk as he do, as he does, and, and others like him." He's saying, "Join in imitating me. Walk as as he walks." And so we can stand firm by imitating the life of Paul, and and not of those whom he later goes on to describe. Right? He says, "Stand firm." And we're going to get there by imitating Paul and those who walk like him and not like those who are enemies of the cross. There are these enemies of the cross. Verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of enemies of the cross of Christ. 
their end is destruction. What is it that these individuals are doing? To have their end is, destru- is destruction is another way of saying their footing is gone. They have no footing. They are, they are down. They are out for the count. They are not standing firm. The floor is falling out from underneath them. Their end is destruction. What are these individuals doing? Who are these individuals and how are they living that, that we should run from? If we want to stand firm, we want to run from these people who are grieving Paul because they walk as the enemies of the cross of Christ. What are they doing? Well, there's three things. There's a list in this text. When you, a Bible study tip, when you're reading your Bible, pay attention to things like lists. When Paul says this, this, and this, oh, write them out. Make a note. Okay, he's making a list here. And Paul's giving us a list about these whose end is destruction. And the list is this. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. These people who are losing their footing, three things about them. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. These are all warnings for us today. These qualities all carry warnings for us. What does it mean to have your belly be your God? Now, it could mean, it could mean lots of things. It could be a, Earlier, we've, we've talked about, Paul is talking about those who are trying to put the Galatian church back under circumcision, back under ceremonial law. So he could mean like those who are uh, all caught up in, in eating clean foods. Uh, if they're, they're trying to bring some Judaism back into the church and they're saying, uh, this food is good, this food is bad. And so there's this stomach, their God is their stomach saying, what you eat is what's most important. That that could be it. I don't I don't think it is. He's moved on it seems into a different group. What does it mean to have your god be your belly? It seems to just have this plain meaning that those who are led as by a god their own appetites. What I hunger for is my god. If I long for this thing, if I, if I, in the deepest part of me, this is my appetite, this is my hunger, in the, in the deepest part of who I am, this is what I want, and then you follow it because it's the deepest part of what you want, you have just made your belly, your appetite, your hungers, your God. And to do that, Paul says, is to lose your footing. This is so in vogue in our culture today. This is so, this is the end thing. This is what we promote and promote and promote in our society today. Is this idea of figure out who you are, the deepest, what do you want? What are your desires? What are your strongest impulses? And then follow that call. One of the most annoying songs, and if you're a country music lover, I apologize, but Casey Musgraves, don't look the song up, I shouldn't even say her name, but she had a song, Follow Your Arrow, and it was all about, you know, you just got to figure out where your arrow is pointing, where are your desires going, and then follow your arrow. That is, biblically, having your stomach, your appetite, your hunger, your desires being your God. And Paul says that when your appetites are what are the leading factor, the, the most dominant voice in your life, your God is your belly. And that is losing your footing. That is your end, is destruction. Their God is their belly. Their God is their stomach. In that whatever their appetites desire, they get. God demands it. 
I want it. I need it. It's, it. I have this deepest part of me. has got to have it. My God is my belly. Therefore, I must serve my God. That's what it means to have your belly be your God. That's the first thing they were like. The second thing, they glory in their shame. Those who glory in their shame would be those whose biggest joys and loudest bragging moments are those moments of their greatest sin and folly. They glory in their shame. Be it in sexual immorality, they have this their, their promiscuity, their, their um, sexual liberation, whatever it may be, is this shameful thing. It is their glory. And we celebrate... What is a shameful reality? What should bring a person shame for their sexual immorality, as Scripture calls it, but is something that we celebrate and put on big shows for, that is glorying in your shame. Maybe it's just some other moment of debauchery, some, some drunken event, some, you know, some stupor, some just other moment of just flat-out sinfulness that then we record on our phones now and we share everywhere and we laugh about and it's, it's the funny moment or we, we get around with buddies and you talk about, I remember when we did this, this incredibly sinful, uh, ridiculous, terrible thing. Wasn't that a great time? That is glorying in your shame. They glory in their shame. These people whose end is destruction, their God is their appetites, their bellies. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. The things of the earth are the things that consume their minds. How do they look? Who likes them? What will they do next? How will it appear to those around them? On and on and on. Their minds are set on earthly things. With minds set on earthly things... They're primarily concerned with asking questions about this world. How is this world going to view it? How is it going to look for them in this life? How is this going to help them in this life? Is it going to profit them right here, right now? Their minds are consumed with earthly things. To be any, to have these three factors is to lose your footing. Your God is your stomach. Your belly, your appetites, you glory in your shame, and your mind is set on the things of this earth. We are called, Paul says, to have our minds set in heavenly things. And why? Because that is where our citizenship is. And this gets us to the truth of the footing we want to find at the start of our section this morning. Whose life is your life? Whose life, there's a bad, I can't find a way to think a good way to say this sentence. Whose life is yours? Whose, whose life is yours? Who does your life belong to? Who do you belong to? And it seems like kind of a trick question. I mean, you, um, I've lived in the United States of America all my life. Darren, I don't belong to anybody. I don't know if you know this, but we just, July 4th, this is the land of the free, the home of the brave. I'm free. Ain't, don't, doesn't nobody own me but me right that who whose life is your life who do you belong to and we i don't belong to anybody i'm on my own i am a free person but listen if you belong to yourself if you are yours and yours alone then you do not know christ in a saving way 
If you are yours, yours alone, if your life is yours, not anybody, I'm mine, I'm, everything I have is mine, I'm for me, then you do not know Jesus Christ in a saving way. Because if you do know Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Him as your Lord, Savior, and treasure, then you are not your own anymore. You are His. You don't belong to you. You belong to Him. And let me tell you, that is some of the best news ever. Our mindset in America, we think, wait a second, I don't want to belong to anybody. No, this, I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not to be a servant. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. And we think, whoa, let's, I hate, let's not talk about that word. That's the kind of language Paul uses. It's doulos in the Greek. He's a slave of Christ. His life is not his own. His life is Christ. And let me tell you, that is the best news ever. That if you're Christ. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to Him. At the beginning of this section, verses 12 through 16, Paul is speaking of this Christian pursuit, Christian sanctification. It's not, it's tough to say, you gotta be careful. It's not just Christian progress because if you, if you emphasize too much Christian progress, then all of a sudden we all get our little flow charts out and we try to see, am I getting, am I, how much better am I than I was? And, and, and honestly, Christian growth is very, it's, if, you, if you put all of it in this subjective box, it's, it's very hard to discern sometimes that you might be making great progress that everyone around you can see, but you feel more messed up and confi- than, than you ever have before. I mean, so it can't be Christian progress, but it's also not Christian perfection, right? Paul says, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. Or am already perfect. There's a Wesleyan doctrine out there that talks about Christian perfection. That a Christian works until they become perfect without sin. And you can't reconcile that with this passage here in Philippians. Paul is clearly saying, I'm not perfect. Uh, last week in the, one of the adult Sunday school classes, we were talking about a lady who said that uh, she doesn't sin anymore. Well... I bet the Apostle Paul wishes she'd been around back when he was living so he could figure out how to get it right because she evidently did. And Paul says here, I'm not perfect. he's, He's confessing, admitting, I haven't laid hold of this perfection, but I am pursuing. Christian sanctification is pursuing. It is the pursuit of Christ. It is the pursuit of Him. It is this reality that the Christian is one who lives in consistent and constant pursuit of Christ. They don't assume they have made it and therefore they can kick back and relax because I've arrived. But they also don't get blown up every time they mess things up because they know that they are Christ and they are, they are pursuing. So they come with repentance and faith to have forgiveness for their error, for their fallenness, for their sinfulness. And they don't just give up. Well, I've messed up. I'm not perfect. I guess I'm just going to quit this thing. No. The Christian is one who pursues. Paul says that the mature understanding that the Christian has, he lives his life in pursuit of the goal of final consummation in gaining Christ. I press to on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The Christian strives to cease from sin. And when they sin, they confess it. Trust in Christ and His righteousness, as Paul talked about earlier in chapter 3. And then press on to fight the next day. But again, what, 
what is this footing? Okay, so we're, we're, we're trying to get towards this idea, stand firm thus, thus in the Lord, my beloved. It's not the having God be your belly, and it's not all these, these three, three things of the, of the one who's in his destruction. What is it? What, which, what is the footing by which one can continue in this pursuit? What is Paul and the others like him who we're supposed to imitate? What are the, what's going on in, in life when it's so full of, of so many difficulties and so many disappointments from our own selves? What is the footing that, that we can stand on? What's the footing that Paul stands on? If, if, I, if I can't rely on myself, if it's not my own perfection, what can, what can I stand on? If you were to finish Paul's sentence right here, in verse 12, if you were to finish the sentence, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because, what? I, I press on to make it my own because, how do you finish that sentence? And how you answer that has a lot to do with how you view the entirety of the Christian life. Is Christianity about what you do for God? You'd answer, I press on to make it my own because, because I, I, if, if, I don't, if I don't do it, no one will. I've got to pull myself up in my own bootstraps. I, I press on to make it my own because What? Is Christianity about your obedience to what God has asked of you? Is Christianity about your taking hold of God? I, I, I press on to make it my own because I'm going to grab hold of God and nothing's going to let him get out of my grip. I, I'm going to grab hold of God. And in, in many ways, there are elements of, of truth in that in the Christian life. But if you're relying on your obedience, on your grasp of God, on your perfection, on your sinlessness, on your performance, if you are banking on those things, they are not nearly large enough characteristics to support the kind of footing that you really need. If that's the footing of the Christian life, if that's how you answer this, because of my own strength, because of my own tenacity, because of my own will, because of my own desires, I'm going to do this. It is not the footing that you need. If, if that's the footing for your Christian faith, what do you do when, when the moment you have this realization of the depth of your sinfulness? And you're like, oh, I was banking on my hold of Christ, and then I just realized it's been three days and I haven't prayed, haven't read my Bible. Um, I've been engaging in thoughts that are definitely sinful. And um, so I guess this is, uh, this is it for me. You know, what do you, what do you do if your own performance is the thing that captures you? As soon as those moments happen in your life, your footing's gone. You're set adrift. And that's where our main idea comes in again. The footing that enables the Christian to stand firm is the truth that Christ has made them his own. Paul says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul places his footing and he stakes his ground on none of those foundations. He presses on in his pursuit of Christ because his eyes have been opened to the reality that Christ has made him his own. 
Paul is able to deny the God of his stomach and repent of that which would bring him shame instead of glorying in it, not setting his mind on earthly things but on heavenly things, not because he's so confident in his possessing of Christ, but because he is certain certain of Christ's possessing of him. That's his footing. That we could be a church that imitates Paul in this rock-solid footing. I am gra- absolutely grab hold of Christ. Absolutely grab hold. Absolutely look to Him. Absolutely reach out to Him. And underneath it all, know that if He is yours, it is not that you have grabbed Him, but that Christ has grabbed you. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. There is... This theme through Philippians we haven't made much of yet. We've kind of just gone over. But there's this theme of the sovereign goodness of God in salvation throughout this whole book. Chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Who begins the good work? God begins the work. The sovereign goodness of God rescuing sinners. It's been great. Verse, chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says, it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only suffer for his sake, but also, or not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He says it's been granted to you. It's been a gift to the Philippian church that they should believe, not only suffer. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, is talking about working out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. They only work it out Because God is actively moving and working from within them. On the one hand, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, hear my call clearly. Trust in Christ. Look to Christ. Repent of your sin. God sent His Son to live the righteous life you should have lived. Die the death that you deserve. So that through repentance, confessing yourself as a sinner, and trusting in Christ, you'd be forgiven of your sin, reconciled to Him, and adopted into His family. Scripture tells us plainly, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. On the other hand, if you're here this morning... And, and repentance has been worked in your heart. And you've trusted in Christ for your salvation. Rejoice. Because that has happened because Christ has made you his own. Christ has made you his own. And when you see this in life, oh, it takes on a different shade of color. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The consequence for you is that the same that as Paul knew it to be, that therefore, because you're not your own, you've been bought with a price, you should glorify God with your body. You realize that your hope in life is not the shaky foundation of the footing of your own abilities, but on the rock-solid foundation of God's ability to keep those that He has made His own. To keep those whom He has made His own. In the context of this passage, it enables you to move forward in your pursuit of God. If you're you're God's, you are not your own. If you have trusted in Christ, you are not your own. Your weekend, your family, your plans, your career, your desires, they're not not yours. They, They belong to God. You are His. And this is a good thing. 
This is a good thing. We, we regard this as loss sometimes. Oh, I don't get to do my own thing. Your own sinful, wicked, uh, ending in destruction thing? Yeah, you don't get to do that. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. You, your desires, your God is no longer your stomach? Well, wait a second. That's, that's a good thing because the God of your stomach leads you to destruction. But when Christ has made you your own, made you his own, it leads you to citizenship in heaven. This is a good thing. It liberates you to move and risk. It, because it, it liberates you to be able to, to witness and to risk uh, things for the cause of Christ because of the reality that you are held by God. I ran uh, the, the micro triathlon at the uh, Judge Lewis Park. I won it. I won the micro triathlon. I was the only one who entered. But uh, I won. I won it. And... Uh, I had to run and I had to bike and I had to swim. And I hate swimming. I like to swim. I hate swimming as a competition. Swimming is recreation. It's dive in. It's play around. It's, it's all that stuff. It isn't try to go somewhere. So I knew at the end I was going to swim laps down and back. And there was one thing that, that convinced me I could do this. I, I, I thought I hate swimming. I'm no good at it. But I, I can do this. And you know what it is? I can touch in the pool. I'm, you know, I, I can't in the 10 foot. But as long as I get through that, that tooth, that one third section there and swim close to the wall, I can put my feet down and stand up. I mean, I was, I was safe with swimming. I was able to risk the swim because I knew. I knew the footing was always underneath there. The pool's got its problems, but the bottom's still in it, right? And so I could stand up in the pool. And the Christian life, the, what, what the footing that enables the Christian to stand firm is that the bottom is there. If God has rescued you, if he has made you your own, the bottom is there. You can swim. You can take risks. You can do selfless acts of love and service for others, not knowing what you might get in return because you know that no matter what it might cost you, no matter what you might lose in this life, the bottom is there. Christ has his hold on you. He has made you his own. It isn't that you've made him yours. You have in one regard, but the bigger footing, the reality underneath it all, that Paul says is because Christ has made him his own. It liberates you to, with gratitude, serve the one who has given you everything. How can you return to self-salvation projects when you realize what Christ has done in rescuing you? Paul rejoices in this rock-solid reality. It is not his hold of Christ. It's Christ's hold of him. Charles Spurgeon says this, Remember, therefore, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not thy joy in Christ that saves thee. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ, as to Christ. Don't look to your hand that's grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of thy hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of thy faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, or our feelings. It is what Jesus is 
not what we are that gives rest to the soul. Trust Christ and rejoice in all that He is this morning. When we come to the communion table, we know that it is not some good work we do when coming to the Lord's table. Rather, all of the work has been done by Christ. I say that every week. It is coming and rejoicing, not in our own abilities, but what Christ has done. This is a tangible way of recognizing the favor of God that has come our way through the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. We come rejoicing not in our grasp of Christ, but His grasp upon us. And His hold is a hold that will not let go. Let's pray. Father, I desire that this rock-solid footing be underneath the feet of this church, be under the feet of every individual in this place, that if salvation has come our way, it has come our way because you have made us your own and that, God, we would live our lives in joy, facing suffering and trials and joys and good times, facing it all based upon the reality that we are yours. Nothing can make us not yours. And therefore, we rest in all that you are for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.